0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, as an avid reader, I love to learn new things, to gain insight into books and characters that fascinate me and to better appreciate the world as it is. That's why I love the Great Courses Plus. It's a streaming learning service that offers in-depth, reliable information on just about anything I'm interested in, from literature to history to science to psychology to cooking to learning a new language, you name it. This is uh, unlimited access to thousands of topics presented by renowned experts who are passionate about what they teach, and it's user-friendly. You can watch or listen on your clock whenever you want from anywhere. Lately, I've been enjoying a course called Stories About Great Storytellers, which makes sense since I talk to people who tell stories on this podcast. Uh, I was just listening to one about A.A. A. Milne, the guy who uh, invented Winnie the Pooh. How did he, When did he come up with Winnie the Pooh? I just found out. I know the answer. Do you? There is so much to discover on The Great Courses Plus. I know you're going to love it. And to help you get started, they are offering other people, listeners, a special limited time offer, a full month of unlimited access to the entire library for free. It's free. Sign up through my special URL today and start enjoying your free month of The Great Courses Plus. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash other That is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash other Okay? All right.
1: You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common.
0: Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, did what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Hey. Just one person, hey. just one time. Hey everybody, right. how's it going? Right. Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I am Brad Listy. And I'm in Los Angeles, California. This is a special Sunday edition of the Other People podcast. What do you think about that? I have Peter Stenson on the program. His novel, 37, is available now from DeZank Books. It is the official February pick of the Nervous Breakdown book club. The NervousBreakdown.com is my online culture magazine and literary community. It has its own uh, monthly book club. If you want to find out more about that, go to TheNervousBreakdown.com. I should also add that TheNervousBreakdown.com has a new or a relatively new editor-in-chief. Joseph Grantham, a past guest on this program, is now the editor-in-chief of The Nervous Breakdown. If you would like to submit something to The Nervous Breakdown, his email is jgrantham at Nervousbreakdown.com. Fiction, poetry, essays, what have you. It's like a lit site. It's it's got some good stuff up there. You should check it out. And it's got a book club. And I interviewed the authors from the book club on this podcast. Oh. I don't know what to tell you. Uh, I was was sick earlier this week. I had the flu. But it was a quick flu. It was like, you know, two, three days. I processed it. I was supposed to go to this monster truck rally with my kids last Sunday and then I just you know I woke up and was like no nothing is happening today I'm just gonna sleep and I did I slept I slept all day Sunday all night Sunday night and then kind of got up Monday and went through the motions I don't know I'm not going to take you through a play-by-play of my illness just I had the flu that's that's what happened this week I'm better now I feel good about it my immune system works (laughs) so it was very nice to talk with peter stenson we did this uh over the transom he lives in colorado my former home state and his book has gotten about as good of uh as good of uh, reception critically as one could hope to have this is a cult novel 37 is the title it is a horror novel cult novel it's literary but it's genre but it's uh, you know but it's genre but it's literary did i just say genre I don't know how to pronounce anything anymore. And you know what I'm saying. It's kind of a hybrid. Everybody loves it. And he was kind enough to spend an hour talking to me. Very pleased to feature this one in the book club this month. Here we go. Let's do it. This is Peter Stenson. And his novel, One More Time, is called 37.
1: I want to know... Basically, the steps and process that like someone becomes broken and what they do about it to try to get out of that. Um, and so, I think that would be kind of the literary side for me. As far as the, the horror, um, I mean, I just like making these anxieties and these fears and these tears that I feel, and I think a lot of us do. I like, you know, giving them life and trying to make them a little bit more concrete and try to put those fears on someone else by <laughs> creating stories where they become real for people.
0: Yeah, get it off of you.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
0: So, but you've never been a part of a cult.
1: No, no, not that's my knowledge. I uh I've long been obsessed with cults and a lot of that credit does go to my wife who, you know, we've been together since we were kids pretty much like 19 and I mean she just devours like all cult related media and activity and literature. Um so when I was kind of stuck about what to write, you know, I was like, what should I do? She's like, a cult, a cult. So this one kind of goes out to her.
0: So uh, did you watch, because like, I've watched like the Wild Wild Country documentary, uh, which was, I think, like one of the big cult uh, events of last year, if, if, you, yes. if you like cult entertainment. But then I also watched this old documentary from CNN called Holy Hell. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen that one, but I try to, I try to push that on everyone cause it's so fucking bizarre.
1: <laughs> you know, I haven't seen Holy hell and the the wild, wild country. Everyone loved it. I, I just couldn't quite get into it. I don't, I don't know why. Um, it could be because I'd been a little bit culted out at that point, uh, just with researching and, you know, writing 37. Uh, but you know, I'm a, big fan of the the classics and the, you know, the canon as far as Heaven's Gate and Waco and, uh, you know, some of those more well-known ones that were going on when I was a kid and I was just like terrified watching them on TV and so curious and I don't know. I I grew up in a pretty religious household where my mom was, you know, involved in the church and worked there. And so it was like extra taboo, these cults. And I, I just loved them and I loved the nikes they wore and whichever one that was the heaven's gate and stuff i just
0: yeah so okay so what you grew up where grew up in uh
1: saint paul minnesota or just north of there um and yeah you know it's like midwestern nice or minnesota nice and
0: my wife is from minnetonka
1: okay nice yeah that's about a half hour away from where i was and uh yeah i mean it was just The whole thing is so taboo but like you know we would still watch them on tv and talk about them and i don't know i I, something has always drawn me to the concept of just like abandoning yourself to something larger than yourself and just like being taken care of and actually believing in something and you know i i think a lot a lot of ways it's what my parents found in organized religion and
0: what what church
1: uh, Presbyterian.
0: Oh, that's like pretty low key. I mean, that's not pretty
1: low key. Yeah. It's not, yeah, no speaking in tongues and it's all pretty domesticated and barbless, but yeah, I, there was always that, that draw, you know, ever ever since I was little to just like a group of people you dedicate your life to.
0: But you Uh, couldn't find that in Presbyterianism. No,
1: no, it, it was not my jam so much. Uh, You know, I I spent a lot of... Like, we would always get picked up from school. My mom would have to go to the church and work and stuff. And we would just, like, roam around the church and the bomb shelters from, you know, World War II or whenever it was. There was a pool table, so we'd play pool. And
0: I don't know. It was just weird things. It smelled weird.
1: It smelled weird. and (laughs) Yeah. Then we started smoking cigarettes, and we would do that down there. And... Yeah, it was it was strange, but not exactly it didn't scratch the same edge, you know, as far as the, my fascination with cults and whatnot.
0: But and that like the, the fascination with cults was like all the way back to childhood.
1: I think so. Uh not as strong as like my wife who, I mean, has read like helter skeletor like ten times. Um, but the, the draw was definitely there and you know, I, I've had some I think the closest kind of cult-like experience uh, that I've had is just my issues, um, you know, with addiction and and alcoholism and things like that uh, and just being plucked from one situation and being put into, you know, a treatment facility or, uh, you know, a rehab or a retreat or something like that uh, and being forced to kind of, you know, like these are your people for the next thirty or ninety days or however long it is, and you gotta figure out how to get by with them and develop close bonds and it it, it happens in like a really short amount of time in my experience. Uh, so I think as far as personal things I was drawing from it was definitely that, of that experience of going to some place completely kinda of broken. Um and finding that family of your own choosing, those people in there with you, like, you know, you get closer to them and share things with them, then, you know, in a week, then you have people your entire life who don't know certain things about you.
0: Isn't it interesting how it's sometimes easier to, to be intimate with, like, people you barely know than it is to do it with people who are in your family?
1: <laughs> I know. It's, it's so bizarre, but so true. Yeah. I mean, I could. Yeah. I would open up. With strangers, uh, you know, as long as we're kind of dealing with the same affliction, uh, way you know, with complete strangers in two minutes, but like with my parents or something, I would never venture forth half the stuff.
0: Well, but it I makes talk about it, it makes sense to me that you would write a cult like that would be like a decent preparation for uh, having some understanding of the dynamics between people in a really intense social structure like a cult, like this isn't to say that like rehab is necessarily a cult, but um, th- I don't know. There, there does seem to be some crossover maybe just in terms of like the intensity of the thing and the brokenness. Cause people who wind up draw- being drawn to cults tend to be nursing a wound. Right.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think the parallels are, I mean, they're not just surface level. It's, it's a pretty direct comparison. Uh, just the cults, You know, or like the groups, the support groups that I ended up finding were kind of niche and, you know, about substances and things like that. Uh, But underneath, you know, kind of 12 steps and all of that, like I think the same questions and urges are there of like trying to find meaning and trying to find something authentic and trying to figure out why the hell we are the way we are and, you know, dealing with past trauma and, You know, all those types of things that I think you would turn toward toward a cult for, um, you know, you're dealing with in in rehabs or, or meetings or therapy and things like that.
0: Well, I have friends who have struggled with addiction and who've gotten sober who have done the steps and gone to meetings and they swear by that and it works for them. And then I have friends who are sober who are like, it's a Christian cult. I'm not into it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, you sort of hear it sort of runs the gamut. And then I was doing book research of my own, uh, years ago. I thought one of my characters was going to be, uh, in AA. So I was like, I should go to one of these meetings. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of blown away by it. Like just the, the rawness of the experience and what people were sharing and just the, the shit that people have been through. Um, and I don't know. There's some power to it. I guess it's whatever works for you and helps you stay well.
1: Right. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I am involved in certain, you know, 12 step groups. I try not to talk about it like tons as far as giving those actual names just for anonymity's sake. Um, But yeah, I mean, I, I have found tremendous help in those groups for years and years and years. Uh, But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people, you know, if you look at the steps, there's a lot of mention or a couple mentions of of God or a power of, you know, higher power of your understanding. And I think that trips up a lot of people because a lot of people are had bad experiences in the church or, you know, different domineering type Godfather figures. And that can really be off-putting to, to a number of people.
0: So what about you? Like, how did you make peace with it? If you're not into Presbyterianism, like, did you find like a sweet spot where you could be comfortable?
1: Uh, I'd say it's kind of constantly in, in flux. I think, you know, sometimes I'm just like, I straight up don't believe in all of this, but I'll kind of fake it till I make it. Um, you know, and just kind of go through the motions and do, those things that are asked of me that are more action kind of oriented, um, you know, just making amends and doing inventory and things like that. Uh, and then other times I do feel that there's maybe like something out there that is, you know, at least some energy or something uh, I can at least strive to be in line with, you know, that will make me a better person. Uh, but as far as, you know that God being anything like um, a Christian God or a Buddhist God or you—you know—I don't even—you know—I'm not well versed in other religions, but it—I don't think it really aligns necessarily to that. And just like I can admit that, like my best thinking and my best actions, like ended up with me having a horrible you know drug addiction, and <laughs> nothing I could do could stop that, but once you know I started listening to other people and trying to be a better person, um, you know good things started to happen so
0: well and it's just like humility like i don't fucking know like I, right. I have no idea what this reality is right um, you know and I, I I think it's a little bit uh, outrageous to think you have it all mailed down and i guess that would apply to people who are super certain and dogmatic about their religion or their anti-religion i think like just some sort of like shrug some sort of cosmic shrug like i'm not entirely sure but i have a hunch that there's a lot more than meets the eye and um like can't that be enough like can't, right. can't that be like the pointing towards some higher power or connective energy or oversoul or something
1: right and i agree with that 100 percent. like anyone who is really adamant and uh you know champions their beliefs it, it just turns me off and i, I shut down automatically because i'm like the best minds in our history can't figure this out like why would <laughs> why would you mr
0: mr Fallwell, America
1: great yeah, like yeah. <laughs> why is your god the right one um well, but what I or vice versa, like you know, if I'm saying there's absolutely no God, like I, I don't know.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly, Shit, yeah. exactly. There, are two sides of the same coin, and I, uh, I have to say too, having been to a meeting and like watched, like one of the things I admire so much about it is that it is like, uh, say what you will about it, it's, it, there's a lot of authenticity. Like people, mm-hmm. people are getting up there and testifying. Right. In a way that like satisfied some desire I had as a kid in Catholic church services, like bored to tears and like confused and like just not not connecting, you know, and feeling right. feeling kind of like uh, bad about myself. like Why? Am, why is everybody getting this? But me? <laughs> right. You know, and then eventually it was like I sort of got proud of myself for not getting it. And maybe that maybe I overcorrected, but. I just, I, I I guess what I'm saying is that I wish there were more of what you might see in a meeting in your average church service where just people just like take turns, taking the microphone, talking about their struggles.
1: (laughs) Right? No. And I, I mean, you laugh, but I, I think it's absolutely, you know, hit the nail on the head. Like I connect through people's troubles and vulnerabilities and their fuck ups. Like that's what makes me human. That's what makes me like them. That's what makes me see myself in them. And, you know, creates a moment of empathy for, you know, five seconds when they're sharing. And I think so often, like, those are, we hide those, I hide those, and, you know, go about my life trying to present this this better self, when in reality, I'm just terrified and ashamed and, you know, scared of every interaction I have. But through sharing that, uh, you know, I, I think you can bridge that disconnect between one another for at least a moment and you know i i I think that's what draws me to writing the kind of stories i do uh just showing that moment when someone is absolutely at their wit's end and doesn't know what to do and takes some sort of action and you know it's usually the wrong action but tries to find that connection to some other people or some other idea or some other you know higher power um but yeah just really quite interested in that
0: hey everybody if you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature i have a book for you it's called truth is the arrow mercy is the bow a diy manual for the construction of stories it is the long-awaited craft book by steve almond So when did you uh, you, st- you said you were smoking cigarettes in the church basement? So I'm imagining you started in with substances as a teenager, like most people.
1: Yeah, it was it was pretty young. I like the summer between I guess fourth and fifth grade.
0: Oh Jesus! Um,
1: so it, it was pretty young. I, I think you're like ten or eleven, and I don't know. I there used to be this like video rental store, like VHS in Parrot Video. We used to go there and be able to like take one movie on the weekend, um, you know, on, like, a Friday. And I rented Basketball Diaries because I thought it was about basketball. (laughs) And I watched it, and I just, like, fell in love with it. Like, I mean, I was like, oh, my God, like, I love this story. I love this actor. You know, it was Leo, Leonardo DiCaprio. I didn't know who he was at the time. Um, You know, I was young. And I don't know. Like, I absolutely something about that really – excited me and and related in some way and i'd never touched a substance um but that definitely got the the idea in my head and so i saved up my lawn mowing money and my brother and i bought a half ounce of weed that summer and uh (laughs) you know the rest is kind of history like he smoked and he was like yeah you know i don't like that at all and i did and i was like oh my god like this is what i've been looking for and
0: yeah Wow, isn't it funny? Because like Basketball Diaries is not a pretty story. It's like no, It's like no. a story, story about a guy who like destroys his life. You're like, that's for me. There we go. It,
1: it really was like I like the desperation and I don't know, just like the hustle and the grit and the darkness and I don't, It just it was like a, what I wanted my story to be. If I mean, it doesn't make sense, but. That's just how I felt.
0: I don't know. I mean, I think there's something about the age and like, you know, rites of passage and young men wanting to uh, have some sort of like intense experience. Uh, I don't know. I had some of that. You know, I didn't have the addiction uh, gene, but I definitely went through a period where I would have done just about anything, you know. Right. Uh, I wanted intensity of experience.
1: Right. Yeah. And I I like that that phrase, intensity of experience, like... I grew up in a you know, a nice suburb, nice house. Didn't really want for much. Everything was pretty easy. Um so I did find myself looking for that like you say.
0: So, okay, so you get out of high school like I want to say I was reading and you like at some point you were like in San Francisco at a fish concert. Uh you were talking about this in an in an interview. And it it actually I think kind of maybe figures in a little bit to this book, but definitely figures into your first book fiend.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I. Uh, so things weren't going all that well, and you know, I've been like arrested, and I think i had been to treatment a couple times by senior year. Um, and I kind of ran away um, with my girlfriend. And it wasn't even fish because they were on hiatus. It was string cheese incident, which makes it even sadder. <laughs> like, you know, like, uh, but yeah, I, I ended up there, and like, it was just like a really, really bad scene. Um,
0: Where were you like exactly?
1: I, I don't know. I was some theater there. It was close to mission street because that's where i learned how to like you know get dope and shoot it from some bum there
0: probably like the um, war the war field maybe
1: i i don't know i mean i guess i could look it up and it was string cheese incident probably 2001 2002 something like that uh, i don't know there was an econolodge that we were staying in and i got locked out and i punched a hole through the window and crawled in and like cut my soul out with a piece of glass and then watched this weird show about Jesus. And
0: what do you mean? You cut your soul out.
1: I, I took a piece of glass and I like stripped down and I just on my stomach, I just cut like a big cut. Like it still has, you know, I still have the scar 20 years later or however long later, 15 years. Um, and I like watched it like drift away. It was, I mean, it was just I was nuts. Like, <laughs> what
0: were you? What were you? What were you on? <laughs> uh,
1: at that moment, like nothing. Like it was just. I mean, I was taking a whole lot of of ecstasy. Like you know, grams of it a night. Uh, which would be like ten. You know, hits of Molly, and I, I was just lost. It. Like I remember i had one of these disposable cameras like when we when i first got there and i thought like crows were my uh like spirit animal or something i had read somewhere heard and so they were watching out and we were down you know at some parking lot and there were just crows everywhere all over the car so i was taking pictures and that girlfriend like you know six months later i was in treatment sent me the, the developed pictures and like, here's are your crows. And there were two pigeons on top of a car. So I was just <laughs> like, and that wasn't like on an active drug. It was just like, it was just some sort of psychosis going on. Um, You know, drug induced for sure. But I was, I was not well. Uh, I think that ended with my girlfriend calling and my parents in Minnesota and be like, Peter needs help. He's lost it. Um, and I remember my dad just showing up and like in the middle of the night in some hotel and I was naked and I didn't even think anything of it. (laughs) I just went back to bed and I remember him just kind of like sitting there in a chair, like crying. It was was really, it was awful. Was that Um,
0: the, was that the bottom? I mean, did you get,
1: that was more or less the bottom. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was as bad as it got. And there was a nice Stint of sobriety for a long time, a short relapse, and then um, sober from that point on. But that was...
0: How long you been sober?
1: Uh, going on 14 years. Oh, good for you. Yeah,
0: thank you. Um, yeah, you know, I, I, I used to go to dead shows back in the day, and especially in those late years, like there is always... And I went to college in Boulder. I lived in Colorado for, oh, okay, for nice. eight years. So I know that milieu pretty well and it can get it can actually get kind of rough like a lot of those kids on tour are pretty strung out not and not and not all of them are kids either there's some people who've been on tour for that's their life
1: (laughs) right (laughs) yeah there's i mean there's that that dark side for sure and it is kind of like those those tour kids who it's not just a couple concerts here and there it's this is what we have to do we probably aren't going to actually see the shows and this is how we have to support our habits and
0: yeah. Were you on tour for a long time or was that just like one show you're like I'm just going to go to San Francisco on a lark and
1: Uh I wasn't really on tour. I mean I was still in high school. I would go, you know, for little runs when I could, you know, like in the Midwest, Deer Creek, um Alpine Valley things like that. Uh So, you know, I'd maybe seen String cheese, like thirty or forty shows you now, twenty or thirty, I think probably. <laughs> just, and fish way less because by the time I was really into them, uh Trey had his own addiction issues and was dealing with those. So,
0: well, thank God he pulled himself out. He was going to, I think he was going to go down the tubes the way that too many people have.
1: Right, right. I I just read just a couple weeks ago an article, I, Rolling Stone or GQ or something, with like six or seven sober, uh, musicians and he was one of them and it was, it was pretty cool. It was just, yeah.
0: Well, like, it's like the narrative was, it's like following kind of like a predictable course and then he, he took a turn, you know?
1: Right. Right.
0: Uh, Um, so good for him. Uh, I'm curious to know, like in the midst of all this, like where writing and books figured in, like, I can't imagine when you were in the depths of your struggle, you were doing too much reading, but maybe I'm wrong.
1: No, you're you're definitely not wrong. Um, I, w- I wasn't a huge reader growing up. Uh, I liked to write a fair amount um, and would always have these grand ideas for, for novels and get like 10 pages in and then, you know, not touch it again. Uh, but all of the, like the addiction stuff happened in a pretty – condensed period of time from like you know as was bad from like 15 or 16 till 18 like it was really just fast and furious tokyo drift um <laughs> sorry i don't fast and furious i had to say tokyo drift uh but yeah just one, one of the notes. one of the
0: most harrowing addiction movies of all time
1: <laughs> <laughs> but uh and then yeah once you know, I started getting sober. It was like back on and I would read a lot and write a lot. And, you know, and then if I relapse, then I would stop and, you know, kind of that, that process. And I wrote one novel on a laptop. That I ended up pawning for like 10 bucks, which is a bummer. I mean, the novel was horrible. It was my first one when I was like 17, but I'd be curious to see it.
0: What was it about?
1: <laughs> Like me, like pretty much. I think at certain points, I accidentally like would make like the narrator's name Peter, and you know it was awful. But it uh, it got weird too because it I had just seen Kill Bill, so like the last third is like all of a sudden there's like these ninjas and and stuff like that. It it doesn't really make tons of sense.
0: Like thousands of crows. <laughs> <laughs> What about I because I feel like you have a particular gift for taking um, the stuff of your life and the stuff of real life and synthesizing it into uh, these like horror fictions. And by that, I'll give you an example. Like, I think there's a kind of genius to this idea of writing uh, in your first book, Fiend. Like it's like a zombie story, but it's tied to methamphetamine use. <laughs> right. You know, which when somebody when somebody says that, like I'm like, oh, that's genius. That's ex-, you know, like because there is some, some kind of zombie quality to people who are cracked out on meth. But right. Um, like how did that like how did that come to be? And then cults and um, you know addiction and religion and you know you're synthesizing all this stuff. So is there a through line from book to book in terms of how you, you know, you might have like thematic territory that you're interested in covering, but you're not quite sure what the way in is. And then, you know, like you said, your wife says write about cult or you think about Mm -hmm. meth and you watch the walking dead or, you know what I'm saying? Like, can you talk a little bit about the creative Genesis?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think there definitely is a, a through line with, you know, both of them. I remember uh, like in grad school, uh, my advisor, Stephen Schwartz.
0: Where did you go to school?
1: Um at Colorado State University. So I moved out from Minnesota to Fort Collins and went to school there. Had a pretty darn good experience there for the most part. Although my first workshop was like my story was really bad and everyone was so mean. I just cried for like days. <laughs> and <laughs> Stephen, he was my advisor and he was in that class with later tell me he's like that was the worst story i've ever had submitted for any (laughs) workshop and it made me so mad he said that like introducing me for a reading and i was like thanks you dick but (laughs) um but anyway i he would always say like given enough page space you'll write your way into your obsessions and i found that to be true with really everything i've i've written you know whether it's short story or essay or you know novels both the published ones and the ones that are just sitting on my my hard drive uh, that there's certain questions or themes or experiences that i've had and i'm trying to figure out and you know sometimes that works well with the story sometimes it, it doesn't um but there are certain obsessions that yeah i'm just trying to work out uh
0: and what are those do you I mean can you name them
1: I think, I think one, I mean, it sounds so stupid and cliche that I'm just trying to figure out like if there is a God or like what it means to believe, what it means to put your faith in something, um, you know, and then stemming from that is just like, why does any of this matter? And, you know, it sounds so freshman and like, you know, philosophy 101 and I guess it kind of is, but it's it's what I think about all the time and it's kind of my natural defense mechanism when I'm being awkward and like waiting to pick up my daughter and talking with the other parents and there are talking about like Lulu lemon and school choice and teachers. And I'm just like, <laughs> I'm just thinking about like cutting my thighs and if there's a reason that we're alive uh, and that's kind of what I, I gravitate toward. And so some weird variation of that, i find in most of my work and and the search for love and search for acceptance um would be in there too and i think a lot of my characters are are dealing with that and searching for that and you know finding different means that supposedly fills that that hole for a little bit whether it's substances or a cult or a belief or a love um and, it, you know, inevitably comes up short, uh, every time. So, um, but as far as kind of the Genesis for, for both books, yeah, you did, you did hit it on the head. Like I watched walking dead and I was like, Oh, cool. Um, you know, for fiend. And I think the, the parallel there is, is pretty easy. You know, like if we go back to like the tour discussions and like, after the show like you're walking around the lot there's like that vacant soulless look to a lot of those kids and you know i know i've seen that and experienced that uh so you know imagining those people as zombies is is pretty clear and
0: (laughs) the string cheese incident parking lot (laughs) it's a magical place of inspiration
1: it's just so embarrassing that that's the band they played mandolin and like no
0: i've been to i've been to a couple of those shows i went to see like leftover salmon back in the day
1: yeah of course
0: in fact i used to see uh what's the guy who's the the uh the lead singer of string cheese incident uh what's his name bill
1: nursey or hershey or something or michael kang is the other one
0: i used to see one of them like at whole foods at like the salad bar (laughs) When I lived in Boulder and I was like, oh, there's the guy from uh string cheese incident. So wait, what is it? What is the string cheese incident? Is there some sort of origin story where somebody like was tripping and had string cheese or something? And,
1: you know, I, I don't know that. I, I don't.
0: There's got to be a story.
1: Yeah. There has to be an actual incident, inciting maybe, incident.
0: Maybe this can be your next book. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs>
1: Thanks. I'll give you royalties <laughs> or
0: so I want to talk to you about structuring because, mm-hmm. um, one of the things, uh, 37 has been hailed for is how intricately plotted and structured it is. And I, you know, I, th- I think it's like, it's, I think it might be easy on the surface for people to understand how you might have all of these different ideas that you feel like fit together in some kind of, uh, loose way, you know, Reli- mm-hmm. religion, cults, addiction, pain, you know, like whatever it is. and it's a, it's another thing entirely to build a cohesive narrative out of it and to really keep people turning pages. Like, can you, can you talk about how you do that? Do you do like really detailed outlining? Is this something that you intuit as you go through and you edit a million times? Yeah,
1: I think outlines for me just confuse me. Like I can't think that far ahead from like, you know, a scene or two, uh, this, with 37, it was like that weird experience where it just completely like took over my mind. Uh, you know, I was probably searching for some sort of escape. Like we had a a young kid and one on the way. And, you know, as I'm sitting there late at night, like feeding bottles and changing diapers, like it was just, I was obsessed with this narrative and trying to figure out how it could all fit together. I ended up, taking a stab at it and getting about 150 pages in and realizing, you know, the kind of the past sections of when he was uh, the narrator was at the cult in the mountains just were completely wrong. So I just erased all of those, um, you know, didn't save any of them and, and did those again. I think the most difficult part was kind of like the third Narrative, like the, the footnote section. And I used it almost as, like, notes to myself at first, um, you know, trying to keep things, you know, like this actually happened, this didn't, this was in the book, this wasn't, uh, trying to keep those straight and ended up having the most fun with that section, you know, being able to write in kind of a, a different voice and being able to – you know, I don't think it's really meta, but it was just common commentary on both stories, uh, and I think in a lot of ways that trustworthy kind of footnote third-person voice was the most deceptive uh, in the end, and I, I had the most fun with that, and that one just kind of came once I was taking out my own placeholders uh, and putting them in You know, a little bit more deception and world building I guess and kind of trying to tie the two narratives together and create that third of being you know in the psych ward and um, you know the interactions with the doctor there but it was a I mean it was it was a mess for you know a long time uh, in my head and on the page and it was going back and trying to just make things add up and dates and everything and none of them really were Um
0: What about, what, what about an ending? Like when, when you're writing your novels, are you working towards an ending that you can see clearly or is it something that materializes late in the game? I'd say
1: for both Fiend and 37, there was kind of a general sense, um, at least of the emotion that I wanted to kind of, you know, arrive at for both of them. It's, I think a pretty similar emotion in in both novels, actually. Um, But as far as the scene, I I really wasn't sure. Uh, With Fiend, I ended up, once I sold it, I was asked to rewrite like the final third. Um, So I did that. And so it was a completely different ending and, you know, different interactions and stuff there. Uh, With 37, that one, I had a better idea. I knew I kind of wanted you know um the narrator to to contact to confront um one uh james shepard so i i was kind of working toward that one a little bit more which helped kind of tie everything together
0: do you do you consider yourself a horror writer like could you could you uh, care about no. label, labels like that
1: i i don't know i don't think so uh I think, I don't know. I, that's a tough question for me. I, I, I mean, every, almost every book I read, uh, is literary. Um, I tend to get bored with a lot of horror. Um, I watch a lot of it on TV and movies and stuff like that. But as far as literature, I, I don't know. I think it tips its hand too clearly. And I, I don't, Care all that much about it, aside from Shirley Jackson, um, but maybe I don't know. I, I I'm not super worried about you know label labels and everything.
0: Um, well, I feel like horror it does sell better than typ- typically than right. than like literary stuff, or it's a you know it's not quite as hard of a slog, but right. Um, I think like I have I've had this theory for a while, and I have no idea. how how valid it is but it it seems like if you're somebody who is writing at least like in in the direction of genre Mm -hmm. uh, to read heavily in literary fiction would probably be really useful and vice versa like if you're somebody who's writing like the most plotless like inner navel-gazing literary fiction it might benefit you to read some genre fiction that does give a shit about plot, you know, Mm -hmm. like, and like page turning and like structure and like these things that, uh, I think can sometimes get lost in the mix. Like maybe like reading outside of your, of your like particular vector is a good exercise.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. 100%. I like it. I didn't do it consciously, um, or don't do it consciously, but yeah, absolutely. I, I would agree with that. And I think I get enough plot just with, you know, the movies because I, I do like watching movies a lot or, you know, binging a a TV show. And I, I think my writing for better or worse is probably influenced by that.
0: And what what are some, what are some shows or like movies that you feel like you were really influenced by particularly like horror stuff or zombie stuff or the darker um, matter? I
1: really, I mean, no surprise like breaking bad and walking dead. Like you put those two together and you get fiend. Um, but pretty much, I mean, just since HBO started putting out good stuff, you know, I guess it's been like 25 years or 20 years, like Sopranos, uh, you know, just kind of like the classic Sopranos, the wire, those type of shows more recently. Um, You know, I really like that series Dark uh, on Netflix. Game of Thrones kind of bored me a little bit. Uh, The Departure, I liked, or Departed, Departure. The one, Departure, I think.
0: Have you ever written for the screen, or have you ever thought about writing, like, have you ever been approached to do, like, graphic novels or comics or anything like that?
1: I have not, no. I I think I would enjoy it. I, yeah, I, I have one novel where there's a, like a standalone, it's, you know, kind of like a four part narrative. Each person has a different, um, you know, voice or style and one character's whole part is just like a standalone screenplay. Um, you know, like regulation length and all all that. And I had a lot of fun writing that, um, just because i i do like writing dialogue and i hate writing settings so if i can just say like a parking lot you know that (laughs) is more fun than describing the parking lot for me uh but i just i i don't really know how that whole world works as far as selling screenplays and different agents and uh yeah so i don't know there's
0: there's only like 10 people i think who actually know how it works (laughs) i know
1: it's like with fiend like you know there was a lot of this interest and like all these different production companies and i was like oh sweet like you know brad pitt's gonna make the movie and then like just nothing happens and then i was just like you know it's hard enough selling stuff in like new york or wherever like in the publishing world and at least there, like once you sign a contract, it usually gets printed. but in movies, there's like ten 1, hundred different places where it can get caught up and
0: yeah it's just, there's like there's yeah. always there's, like lots of talk and lots of excitement, and then very little happens that's that's right. the that's the normal story Right. because there's really only so many people who you know especially like actors or whatever who can actually make a movie happen right. Uh, otherwise you've got a big group of people making decisions around a not small uh, sum of money and right. that always is a complicating factor.
1: Yeah. So yeah, that kind of scared me away from, from pursuing that. I get enough rejection on <laughs> short stories and novels.
0: But I feel that. like you I feel like your work lends itself though. I feel like there's a, I think that's going to happen eventually, you know, especially if you keep writing in this general vein, I have to believe that people will catch on because I feel like there's something cinematic and interesting. And, um, like there's a, there's a, uh, like there's a line from popular culture to the work that you're doing, but there's also like a depth of intelligence that, uh, elevates it, which we need more of in our popular culture. That's my, that's my feeling.
1: Well, I appreciate that. And I think I would love that to be, to be true. And I think, yeah. Hey, it's funny. There's a, we live in Stapleton, which is like a new suburb inside of Denver where the old airport used to be. And one of the moms was like, Hey, I chose your book for book club. <laughs> um, she says this to my wife and my wife's like, well, why the hell didn't she invite me to the book club? Cause they asked if I could come like talk. But anyway, I went over there and there's like six women and you know, it was a very intelligent, great book club, but for the last like half hour, they were just talking about like what actors or actresses would play who and, you know, and uh, 37. And I think, I don't know. It it got me thinking like, I was like, that would be really cool. You know, a a sort of dream um, to have that come true. I just, yeah, I don't know how one goes about that or. Yeah.
0: Well, I'm here in Los Angeles. Let me make a couple of phone calls. (laughs) Have it done by Monday.
1: Yeah, that's, a, that's all it is, right? <laughs> Raise $50 million and yeah. So let us Netflix. Uh,
0: I want to talk, I mean, while we're talking about, um, you know, the business of film, I want to talk a little bit about the business side of writing and just, mm-hmm. you know, I, a lot of my listeners are working on books or want to be working on books at some point and are trying to figure out how to get the work done in the context of having to make a living and having to sort out schedules and do all that. So like, you started writing um i 'm assuming years ago um mm-hmm. and like you know were you working day jobs were you writing at night? do you have a set schedule like how do you do it
1: so i did I worked at this travel agency when I was younger, um and this was like kind of like a quote unquote like sober job where you just put in your time and you don 't care you know I was like twenty or twenty one and I worked there a number of years and I was so bad at it that my line would never ring because it was like other travel agents would call us and we would sell like bulk airfare. So I just wrote. Um, So I got in the the habit of writing in the morning, you know, trying to get like two hours done. And it was nice because I would do it on the clock because I was so bad and no one called. Um, And I've tried to maintain that practice, you know, over the last 15 years some days, some years better than others, as far as just getting up, writing in the morning. Uh, all through like grad school, um, and the, you know, I'd say from like 2008 till probably 2014, I would probably write like two hours every morning. And it was before work or before school. And it was just, you know, I would get up five in the morning or whatever it was five thirty, and leave usually coffee shops weren't open yet. So I would just sit there with my computer and write in the car um, and just try to get, you know, like a thousand words done. And a lot of times it was shit. A lot of times, you know, I would just erase it after, but at least I was, I was trying to, and I think that was important for me just because I didn't come to writing as educated as a lot of people as far as you know rating histories and everything so i was trying to figure out my voice and how things work and why and different craft elements um but it's gotten a lot tougher we have three kids who are five and under oh my god uh, (laughs) well they're almost six four and one, but right now you can you can make that claim just to shock people. So, so
0: that's your next horror novel, right there.
1: <laughs> I know. It's like ever since I've had kids, I keep reading uh, Ben Marcus's what is it, Flame Alphabet, where like the kids turn on them. Um, because I'm like, oh, this is just a story about raising kids and how horrible they are. Uh, so it's a lot more difficult now, and especially last couple of years, I was teaching in a public school here, and I, like for two years i just I didn't really write. it was just too hard. I was trying to figure out lesson plans and you know like that was like seventy hours a week and then sixty seventy um, and then just with the kids, and so it was miserable and as far as not writing, I'm supposed to say you know, it was like the best time of my life and the kids <laughs> are born and young but like, I, I need to write. Like, it's what makes me happy. It's what makes me feel like I can go about the rest of my day and do whatever shitty job as long as, you know, I've already put in an hour or two writing. Uh,
0: well, there's a couple of things that come to mind as I hear you talk about this. Like, one is just the basic importance of showing up at the keyboard or at the page. Mm-hmm. Like, just show up. Like, it doesn't have to be good. It could be just a big pile of shit and you could delete it the next day. Um, or just, you know, it winds up in the, the hard drive somewhere. And then the other thing that occurs to me is that you don't have to have that much time to get a, right. lot, a lot of work done. Like two hours is a, is fine, you know? Right. I, I think sometimes in the past I've gotten caught up in this mindset where it's like, well, if I don't have you know a 6 hour block and you know once you have kids 6 hour blocks are, <laughs> it's not happening no no and, and i mean even if you don't you know even if you don't to find 6 hours to yourself where you're not having to uh fulfill work obligations or obligations to significant others or whatever it is it's just difficult you know the 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 world is not built necessarily to accommodate this unless you're you know really like you've really pared your existence down socially and otherwise to make writing the center of it, but it doesn't sound like that's what you've done.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think a couple things like for me, like two hours, like generally if I'm in the middle of like a novel or something, like it it equates to about a thousand words and you know, if most of my novels are 60 to 80,000 words like that, he would crank out a draft in like four or five months. It doesn't always go like that, but you know, any faster or any more time would be ridiculous. It's like Stephen King who, I mean, I admire and love and read a lot of his stuff, but I'm not going to write like three books a year. You know what I mean? Like that's just, that's crazy. Um, And any more than that, like I, I just lose focus like i i have to stop after like two hours and like go do something else and you know maybe come back but i, I just don't have the attention span um for for any more than that for but, sure
0: but i think part of being a, a skilled writer or a skilled artist of any kind is being attuned to your own energies because there is a point at which there are diminishing returns and you know to write through that point out of some sort of idea of what discipline looks like can actually be counterproductive
1: yeah absolutely yeah and then discouraging and yeah you, you know i've gotten mad at myself like oh this whole section is horrible like why did i even write it blah 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 it, i mean it usually is like the first cup of coffee like once that wears off after like two hours <laughs> it's like i'm done for the day <laughs>
0: So, what about the business side of of books and getting your work in print? Uh, let's, let's let's go back to Fiend. You write it and you uh, go out like searching for an agent. Was this something you worked on in your graduate program at Colorado State?
1: Uh this was something I was kind of doing on the side. I ended up I was working at the Colorado Review, which is associated with CSU. Um, so I went to AWP is, you know, one of the people one of the editors manning the booth there and, uh, a gentleman came by and he's like, Oh, you know, I'm an agent. And I, I said like this super cheesy line that like, I don't know where it came from. I was like, well, oh, how about I make you rich or like something's like so cheesy <laughs> like that. And he's like, yeah, okay. Here's my card. Um, and at that point I think I maybe had like the first chapter of fiend done and you know, I pitched him a couple ideas that I was working on. He's like, Oh yeah, you know, that one sounds cool. Like send it to me when you're done. And I ended up just writing it like really quickly. Like that novel came out in about a month, the first draft, uh, you know, just I mean, I think a lot of it was a, a personal story. It was pretty easy for me to tell, and then I was just having fun with more genre parts and, you know, kind of a classic inverted checkmark of rising action, and you know, the whole thing was was pretty easy. and He's like, "Wow, like this is way better than I thought it was going to be." Uh, he's like, "I think we can sell this." Um, so we worked on editing and trying to clean it up. And then, yeah, I forget the exact time frame. But, you know, he sent it out to, you know, five or six people and editors. And two or three responded and wanted it. And, you know, there was, like, a little mini bidding war. And it sold, like, while I was still in grad school. And it was crazy.
0: That had had to feel good.
1: Yeah, it, it definitely did. Especially after, like everyone was so mean to my first story. You're like, yeah,
0: suck it motherfuckers. (laughs) (laughs) So what about, uh, what about this agent? Who is your agent? Uh,
1: so that agent was, um, James, uh, my God, why am I blanking on his name?
0: But it's not the same one that you have now.
1: Not the same. James, yeah, James McGinnis. Um, and I, have switched agents, uh, to Jim McCarthy. Um, and And he's at, he's
0: at, he's at Distel, uh, Jane Distel's agency. Yes. Do you want to, you want to know something crazy? Like years and years ago, I think I met with him early in my agent search when he was just like a baby agent. Really? I mean, it's like such a small world, yeah. Like the office right off of uh, Union Square, I think. Is, yeah, yeah, that
1: is crazy.
0: I remember that, and I remember this is another crazy story. Is I remember going into the waiting room there uh, before I met with him, and they had copies of uh, Barack Obama's Dreams from My Father, and this was like uh-huh. this was like before Barack Obama was a thing. <laughs> That's and, crazy, yeah, because Jane had been his agent.
1: Yeah, back
0: before he was, you know, before he was a national figure. So it's just like all these weird little like memories I have of that, but I saw his name and I was like, God, that's so familiar. And then I think I met with him early. Nice. Yeah. So he, so he is now your agent. Did he sell 37?
1: He did. Yes. Yes. And, Uh, uh, yeah, that's been, you know, great experience, uh, working with him. I think, I think I've maybe two or three other novels, uh, some that he's liked and wanted to work on some that he's like, well, you know, why don't we try something else? Um, but yeah, I've had a great experience with him so far.
0: And what do you, what are you working on now? Um,
1: I was like a hundred or so pages into something that was just feeling too dark. And like, I'd, I'd done it before. Um, so I recently took a break on that. Uh, now I'm working on this weird <laughs> kind of family, small town, Wisconsin. Um, and he's like, a you know, it works in manufacturing for little rubber axles for tires. Uh, and um, they, they, going into tough times and kind of pivot to making dildos like shampoo bottles that work as dildos and
0: vibrators.
1: <laughs> and it's, you know, a complete departure to anything I've done, but I'm having a lot of fun with it. And we'll I was, if...
0: I was not expecting that. I have no, to say, I, I
1: wasn't either. Um, <laughs> and so we'll, we'll see if anything happens there. I, I generally like, if I get to, I can get a hundred pages of something relatively easy and I feel excited about it and then this weird thing happens where like all of a sudden it's really hard to keep going and I'm like this that steam is gone and I realize like I wrote 100 pages when it should have been a you know 15 page short story
0: uh so, so do you we'll, do you re, do you then revise it into a story or no
1: No then it usually just sits there and I'll steal parts of it for a different novel or a different idea or maybe go back to it if, if something kind of comes into life and, you know, sparks a, a different take on it. But yeah, it's almost like, it's like I dread that. Like if I hit a hundred pages, I'll be like, Oh, I need to train to 110 <laughs> because I'm like, just worried that now it's just in my head that I'll just quit something.
0: Well, yeah. I man, how do you know when, like, I guess you don't have that feeling when something is working and you just keep going.
1: Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, I mean, like in the middle of a novel when you have no idea like what you're doing or where it's going, like it sucks. You know, it's it's scary. And each scene you're like, well, that was probably the wrong scene.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And what about this feeling of because like your your books are dark, you know, and there's like uh, like they, they manage to be incredibly dark, but also gripping. And, uh, like gratifying on a human level. It's like, it's like a neat trick to pull. And I guess like out of my own curiosity, it's like, how do you, how do you do that? How do you like this latest one that you sort of abandoned? You're like, this is just too dark. Um, I, I, I recognize that because like sometimes Mm -hmm. in my own work, it's, it's not horror, but it's just depressing. (laughs) Right. Right. And I'm like, you know what, that there's just no air, you know? And it's like, it's not going to be a redeeming reading experience for anybody. And that doesn't mean that there can't be darkness in a piece of fiction. Uh, Like, obviously there can, but it's like, what's the, what's the, like, how do you pull it off? You know, like, how do you make sure that you're not suffocating people?
1: You know, I think that's a a great question and one that I really hadn't thought about until people started talking about thirty seven and how dark it is. And I don't. To me, it wasn't like overly dark, but that's crazy because it's super super dark. Um, but just realizing that, like, not everyone thinks like me, like it would. If I have kind of like a, a character stuck in a rut, nihilist, like things are going horribly, like as long as they're still striving or still holding out some sense of hope that things could get better. Uh, you know, I, I I think there's some there's some redeeming quality there.
0: Yeah, like, like the, uh, the escape is not completely like shut off.
1: Right. Right.
0: There's like some hope. There's like one, like some glimmer of light around the sealed doorway.
1: (laughs) Right. Right. And yeah, this this latest one, I just didn't see that happening. It was like each little turn I was I was making. I'm like, oh, things just got worse for this character. Yeah. Well, we'll see there. I think there's something there, but it's just not ready. You know. Um,
0: So what do your religious parents think of your uh, your fiction? Do they read
1: it? Uh, They do. They love it. I mean, uh, yeah, it's, uh...
0: They're like, hey, he's not, like, naked in a hotel room on Ten ten Hits of Molly.
1: (laughs) Things are looking up. (laughs) The one thing, um... It's weird, because, like, my mom, you know, she was working at the church and everything, like I said, but, I mean, she is, like, my horror movie influence. Like, she'll text me, like, every horror movie, she'll give it a review and just be like, I mean, she loves it, like that's what she does now that she's retired she just goes to to movies like that and it's kind of bizarre um my dad was a little worried with this one just because the the father in it uh his kind of claim to fame in 37 is masturbating and you know at the doorway well his son sleeps so he you know made sure to tell everyone he's like Hey, Peter has a new book, but I promise you, I never did that. Like, <laughs> which I would understand, you know. Well, because there's, there's other similarities. Like, he's a big fly fisherman, and the dad's a fly fisherman, and you know, he reads the paper every morning, and so there were enough similarities that he's like, oh my god, people are going to think this.
0: Well, but you know, I think what it what occurs to me is that like sometimes I think people might write really dark stuff. I, I guess there's a I guess there's a possibility that you're doing it out of some sense of revenge against parents that you didn't get along with. But I think what's more often the case is that people who are able to be transgressive on the page um, come from a loving family and feel safe and at liberty to go to these places without fear of uh, losing that. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, No,
1: absolutely. You you know, and that would be the case with, with me for sure. Like my parents were great and loving and supportive and
0: Yeah. It counts for a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. I'm glad we got to shine uh, a light on this book in the book club this month. And I am going to be interested to read your great American dildo novel when it comes out.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I am too. I'm like doing a lot of research which is messing up my like amazon search history it's like kids books and giant dildos
0: and yeah i don't know either way i guess well i i I wish you well
1: all right well thank you very much i appreciate it
0: all right ladies and gentlemen that is peter stenson right there his novel is called 37 it is available from design books peter stenson Thirty-seven, the official February pick of the Nervous Breakdown book club you can find Peter on Twitter his handle is at Peter C. Stenson Peter Stenson 37 go get your copy right now if you would like to join the Nervous Breakdown book club you can do that at the thenervousbreakdown.com thank you to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total for the theme song music as always thank you to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music If you have something to say to me, if you would like to comment on the show or tell me a story, you can send me an email. The address is letters at otherppl.com, letters at otherppl.com. If you like this program, if you binge listen, if you have uh, consumed large quantities of my content and would like to offer some support to the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Don't forget about the Other People app. It's free. The Other People with Brad Listy app. This show has its own official app. It is free. Go get it. It's free. So, uh, yeah, I'm better. I had the flu and I'm better. And I'm very excited about it. I get kind of uh, wobbly emotionally when I'm ill. I don't like it. I'm like a little vulnerable... And uh, I was thinking about that this week when I was in the depths of my illness. I was thinking about this movie, Phantom Thread, the Paul Thomas Anderson movie with Daniel Day-Lewis. Isn't that kind of what that movie is about? I only saw it once, and, uh, you know, it was back when it came out. But you know, it's about, like, this woman. She poisons her husband, and she kind of likes it. She likes it when, when he's sick and, like, vulnerable. Whereas, like, my wife is, like, the opposite. She's, like, disgusted with me. (laughs) She's she's like, ugh. Get better. You smell weird. And uh, you're sweating a lot. So, anyway, I'm better. I'm kind of bummed out that I missed the monster truck rally. I wanted to go. I've never been to a monster truck rally. It's on my bucket list. But uh, my wife took the kids. I stayed home and uh, shivered under the covers and slept. Alright, that's all. That's it. That's it. Bye. <laughs>